David Lentiwa is assistant professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame, where he's a faculty fellow of both the Kellogg Institute for International Studies and the Institute for Latino Studies. He completed his doctorate at Notre Dame in 2012 and was a graduate fellow of the Notre Dame Institute for Advanced Study. Before returning to Notre Dame, he taught at the Catholic University of America. He is co-author with uh, Daryl Fashion and Del Deschamps of Comparative Religious Ethics, a Narrative Approach to Global Ethics, 2011. He is co-editor and co-translator with Lawrence Clayton of the forthcoming documentary reader Bartolome de las Casas and the Defense of the Meridian Rights. He has published articles in Modern Theology, Journal of Law and Religion, and Journal of the Society of Christian Ethics. Please welcome David Lantigua. Thank you, Raul, for the introduction. Um, thanks to all of you for coming. I uh, was hoping to um, bring the family out here to Chicago and enjoy the, the wonderful spring, April weather, but here we are. Um, hell hath froze over, though, already in South Bend two days ago, so um, anything's possible. Um, Thanks, uh, again, I want to second uh, Raul's thank yous to all those involved um, in making this possible here. Thank you to, to Thomas Levergood here at the Lumen Christi Institute for inviting me and to all those um, involved in making this happen behind the scenes, um, students and staff, thank you very much um, for your hospitality. The chorus of human rights declarations during the 20th century was a tragic irony of history. Political modernity relied on a sacred trust between individuals and states, ensuring citizens order against anarchy and safety against enmity. The sovereign state promised minted citizens life, liberty, and the protection of their private property. When political totalitarianisms terrorized the world stage in the 20th century, however, the modern myth of the nation state as defender of rights lost a sacred allure like never before. Leviathan had come of age and violently turned on its own people slaughtering and expelling countless persons deemed second-class citizens or no citizens at all. The demise of what Thomas Hobbes called the mortal god gave birth to global human rights. Modern political ideas of the revolutionary or unalienable rights of man, regardless of their nobility, never attained the moral grandeur that human rights did in the second half of the 20th century. As Marianne Glendon has shown in her history of the UN Universal Declaration, the global human rights doctrine finally made it possible to subjugate the sovereign nation state by circumscribing its limits under external scrutiny. One of the primary architects of the Universal Declaration, the Lebanese Christian Charles Malik, summarized the new political era. He said, the state was no more to be the final guardian of the individual. How and why global human rights emerged at all has been a contentious point among academics spawning a cottage industry of sorts. The dominant narrative for many, with varying degrees of emphasis on its secular and humanitarian origins, has been that global human rights was a logical extension of the modern liberal democratic order, shorn of its religious associations. Some scholars, including Glendon and Samuel Moyne more recently, have identified the prominent role of Catholic social teaching in quickening the support for universal human rights. The personalist, global ethic of popes and philosophers during the 20th century brings into sharper relief the legacy of 16th century Spanish theologians who promoted the basic rights of native peoples against the violent excesses of European colonial expansion. The early modern theologians, mostly Dominican, 
all of whom were associated with the scholastic renewal of Thomism, rejected the extremes of papalist universalism and imperialist humanism, represented by colonialist partisans of the Spanish royal court. What I refer to as early modern Catholic social teaching in this lecture gives us a strategy for deepening and developing theological reflection on the moral foundations of world order defended by the modern popes. This is especially pertinent in our current global political climate as scholars and public intellectuals increasingly signal the retreat and failure of Western liberalism. The West is faced with a troubling new prospect. What will happen to global human rights if its liberal motivations are drained or depleted? In this lecture, I consider how the church's social teaching can strengthen Christian conviction about human rights, a necessary component for affirming and recognizing world order. Yet it is a conviction wrought by directly engaging, rather than alighting, Christianity's complicit colonial past. From this theological vantage point, I suggest that we are in a better position to address the colonialist underbelly of Westphalian rights discourse and move beyond the myth of an international state of nature. In March of 1937, Pope Pius XI released two encyclical letters condemning Nazi Germany and Soviet communism. Remarkably, the Pope invoked personal dignity and basic rights to indict the political worship of the nation state, which he referred to as statolatry. Taming Leviathan amounted to a modern Catholic reinterpretation of the state's central purpose, which was to, quote, promote the rights, dignity, and liberty of human personality, according to Pius. With the moral and political fabric of Europe torn apart and the reality of nuclear weapons on horrendous display, International order was an urgent requirement of, for humanity's future in the second half of the 20th century. Neither one of the two prevailing global ideologies that typified the ensuing Cold War conflict presented adequate moral options according to the church's social teaching. In this context, personalism became the predominantly Christian political alternative to atomistic individualism and statist collectivism. Jacques Maritain became the most articulate 20th century defender of Christian personalism, linking it directly with the post-war political effort to formulate a global human rights doctrine founded on human dignity. The personalist global ethics sh shared by Maritain, and especially Pope Pius XII, endorsed a vision of supranational society in its natural and mystical modes. Maritain's illustrious career included his role as the French ambassador to the Holy See, and leading member of the Philosophical Committee for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO. In his latter capacity at UNESCO, which anticipated the UN Universal Declaration, Maritain sought to achieve a practical consensus among liberal individualists, personalists, and communists, despite divergent theoretical commitments. Maritain filtered Thomistic ideas about natural law through a personalist lens to lay the groundwork for his defense of human rights. The natural law provided a rational principle uniting all peoples into a worldwide moral community based on the dignity and rights of human persons. A rational basis of supranational society and human nature countered 19th century positivist conceptions of rights requiring state sovereignty for its formulation. Charles Malick's key role in the 1948 drafting of the UN Universal Declaration 
similarly prompted him to comment on the centrality of natural law doctrine for the Declaration's preamble and first article. For Malik, the recognition of rights for everyone born free and equal in dignity presupposed ineradicable and enduring truths about human nature. He reported that up to the last stage of its development, the first article of the document read, quote, endowed by nature with reason and conscience, end quote. However, due to a certain confusion in translation, he says, and Marianne Glendon has also noted in her work, the UN committee dropped by nature, the reference to nature, yet with the general acknowledgement that the meaning of the phrase was still implied. Malik was adamant that the essential underlying doctrine of the Declaration was the idea of natural law. Like Maritan, Malik subscribed to the personalist doctrine of natural law for human rights. In Malik's view, this authentic doctrine demanded faith. He wrote, quote, what a pale and miserable phantom is all our activity for human rights by comparison with the humanity already achieved for all of us in Jesus Christ, end quote. Faith in Christ offered the only reliable safeguard for revealing humanity's genuine potential and its endowed dignity. Malik went so far as to call the human rights covenant a symptom of the decay rather than a cure. Despite Maritain's strong commitment to finding practical consensus, he too remained very modest about human rights in the long term. Writing only three years after the Declaration, he noted that such an achievement was doubtless very little and the last refuge of intellectual agreement among men. Though Malik and Maritain were key players in the Christian articulation of human rights, Pope Bias XII gave human dignity, as Samuel Moyne says, its highest profile entry into world politics. Pius's Christmas addresses on the universal significance of the incarnation was a watershed era of papal social teaching on human dignity and human rights. His international radio messages, along with key encyclicals, outlined the specific role of ecclesial faith in the promotion of moral order for global society. Pius XII approached human rights from a viewpoint of the incarnation, referring to the Savior's nativity as, quote, the feast of human dignity. For nearly two decades, the wartime pope broadcast a Christian vision of human dignity across Europe and beyond. To a greater extent than Maritain and Malik, the Roman pontiff placed ecclesial faith at the center of post-war peace efforts to rehabilitate unity and order. As Pius proclaimed, and I have listed up here on the slide, the church has the mission to announce to the world, which is looking for better and more perfect forms of democracy, the highest and most needed message that there can be, the dignity of man, the call to be sons of God. The holy story of Christmas proclaims this inviolable dignity of man with a vigor and authority that cannot be gainsaid, an authority and vigor that infinitely transcends that which all possible declarations of the rights of man could achieve. According to this global ethic of Christian personalism, the supranational world community participating in human nature required the indispensable and saving role of the supranational society of the church, the mystical body of Christ. As the prominent theologian of Vatican II, Henri de Lubac, observed, if there is not admitted beyond all visible mortal societies a mystical and eternal community, beings are left in a solitary state or are crushed into annihilation. 
Across the Atlantic, the turn to the mystical body of Christ to advance the unity and dignity of human persons captured the moral imagination of socially engaged believers like San Alberto Hurtado in Chile, Dorothy Day of the Catholic Worker, and Virgil Michael of the liturgical movement. Catholic social teaching after Pius XII therefore stretched beyond the domestic political common good to the universal common good. As an aside, John XXIII's human rights encyclical, Pachamenteris, introduced the contested idea of a worldwide public authority while acknowledging the respective autonomy of states under the principle of subsidiarity. Now, Pius XII specifically looked to the mystical body of Christ as a necessary antidote to the ongoing threat of tribal nationalism and imperialism. Pius's encyclical on the mystical body of Christ proclaimed the relevance of the church for everyone, even non-believers, who could catch sight of what he said, a divinely given unity by which all men of every race are united to Christ in the bond of brotherhood. Pius would even later suggest that a growing awareness of interdependence and unity in the world means that humanity will become more and more inclined to recognize that it is the mystical body of Christ, perhaps in response to the critiques he received um, for the views he held in his earlier encyclical. Pius XII's supranational vision of the church as a religious society in a world of political societies sought to resist a homogenization of cultures by affirming instead the unique gift of particular peoples. The Pope contrasted the church's supranational character with its counterfeit, imperialism, which makes the image of one civilization normative for all others. The imperialism of modern nation states has expanded outward, Pius wrote, and subjected peoples to the material and commercial interests of the dominating power. Along with succeeding popes in the community of faith, Pius saw the mystical body of Christ extending beyond the borders of empires and nation states transcending both the communist international and the global market economy, and reminding leaders of a divinely sanctioned moral order in which the dignity of God's image-bearing creatures provides the authentic aim of social political life. For the modern papacy, the witness of ecclesial faith across cultures and history offers a genuine basis for world order as an alternative to the ancient practice of making empire through colonial subjugation and enslavement. Three years after, or before Rerum Novarum, the first modern social encyclical, Pope Leo XIII wrote one on the abolition of slavery in Brazil, entitled In Plurimus. In this abolitionist encyclical, Leo recalled the legacy of early modern Catholic social teaching by referencing his 16th century predecessor, Pope Paul III. We have the image of here. As Leo noted, Paul III defended the natural rights of Muslim and Amerindian peoples in the sight of all nations. Paul III declared that each of them was master of his own person, that they could live together under their own laws, and that they could acquire and hold property for themselves. Additionally, Paul III required bishops to withhold sacraments from those who refused to set these oppressed peoples free. The threefold affirmation of the right of freedom, self-rule, and property along with the threat of excommunication, were a direct result of the teachings and practices of Spanish Dominican missionaries and theologians addressing the affair of the Indies. According to these Spanish Dominicans, who influenced Paul III, the church's task of witnessing to a new world order 
transcending the rule and practice of imperial sovereignty, rested on two claims of universality. The universal proclamation of the gospel to all nations and the universal inclusivity of the body of Christ. Now, back to the 15th and 16th century. The principal legal rationale for Spanish presence in the Indies was the conversion of native peoples. One year after the admirable Admiral Christopher Columbus first made Caribbean landfall in 1492, Pope Alexander VI wrote the bull Intercetera, entrusting the Catholic monarchs of Spain, Ferdinand and Isabel, with the duty of bringing the ecclesial faith to the peoples of the Indies. Beginning with Columbus, Spain was involved in a civilizing mission to take possession of the Indies through a legal discourse of discovery and conquest. Starting with the first log of his diary, the aim of Columbus's anticipated westward voyage to India was incandescent. He wrote, to ascertain the manner of bringing about infidel conversion of the Christian faith. This was his goal. In Columbus's opinion, the realization of the spiritual aim could only succeed through the political control of the Indies. His desire, as indicated in an entry written less than a week after his first landfall on the island of Hispaniola, was, quote, not to pass any island without taking possession of it, end quote. The legal term, taking possession, was an eminently Christian political claim suffused with an infatuating motivation for economic wealth. In that same diary entry, the, admirable, the admiral stated plainly, I do not wish to delay in finding gold by discovering and going about many islands. The quest for gold was a constant theme in Columbus's writings about the voyages. Zvetan Todorov's pensive study of Columbus's psychology of the voyage has made the arresting point that for Columbus, the verbs to discover and to take possession become intransitive. Although Columbus referred to the natives as, quote, the greatest wealth of the islands, end quote, he measured native worth and value according to their potential to work in the gold mines. Columbus and the conquistadors who followed after him were set on forcing work upon natives. The natives were considered lazy and idle because they had common ownership of goods and lacked private property and commercial industry. To allegedly benefit the natives, the first colonizers developed the forced labor system known as the encomienda, which had roots back in Spain. The chief purpose of this institution was to provide royal revenue through tributary labor in exchange for instruction in the faith. Though the spiritual purpose of Spanish presence in the Indies augmented theocratic arguments for colonial dispossession, it also sustained Dominican and Franciscan critiques of colonial abuses against Amerindians. Preaching to the encomenderos on the island of Hispaniola in 1511, the first Dominicans in the New World proclaimed the dignity and worth of natives made in God's image and fully deserving of neighbor love. Their unyielding message, rebuking the forced labor system and the waging of unjust war to acquire native laborers, eventually reached the conscience of the priest and comendero of Cuba, Bartolomé de las Casas. We have this wood carving image of here. After being threatened with excommunication by Dominican defenders of the Indians, Las Casas dissolved his encomienda and would eventually join the order of preachers. Throughout his life, Las Casas would consistently plead the native cause 
before the Spanish Council of the Indies. As he said in one of his early testimonies, quote, the principal end by which everything has been ordered is the salvation of the Indians. But there has been a failure to bring this about because of Spaniards who prefer money over the salvation of souls, end quote. These Dominican friars believed that the principal end of salvation trumped profit and brought all other temporal considerations in the Indies under spiritual judgment. On this basis, they rejected the forced labor system and its purported goal to convert and civilize natives. They considered the encomienda an intrinsically evil institution because it used violent force, violent force in the process of conversion. Relatedly, Spanish Dominicans categorically opposed the crusader-like method of missionary war and advanced in its place a peaceful method of evangelization conforming to the biblical norm and example given by Jesus Christ to his apostles. The conquest, the reconquista, and the crusades were all part of a single Spanish imaginary to subjugate and convert enemy infidels to Christ. As one Spanish chronicler put it in the 16th century, Quote, the conquest of the Indies began once the conquest of the Moors ended because it was God's will that Spaniards be always at war with infidels. End quote. Las Casas' treatise on peaceful evangelization, entitled The Only Way to Call All Peoples to the True Religion, was a full-scale rejection of missionary war that employed scripture, ancient philosophy, the church fathers, scholastic theology, and canon law. He argued that European wars of conquest in order to convert and Christianize infidels was completely unjust, for it violated what he called a right of kinship that protected innocent neighbors from undue harm. Supranational society received its clearest expression in Las Casas' notable statement that all humankind is one, since everyone possesses reason and free will as creatures made in God's image and likeness. Las Casas and the Dominicans had to respond to theocratic jurists who had devised the notorious legal document known as the Requirement, which set the terms for taking possession of Spain's own promised land. The legal protocol, the Requirement, required the peoples of the New World, by virtue of papal concession, to either submit to Spanish political authority or be forced to through war and enslavement. It gained momentum as a solution to replenish a rapidly depleting native labor population crushed by the encomienda and European disease. Notably, the requirement derived its biblical justification from the story of Joshua and the seizure of the land of Canaan by the force of arms. One of the lawyers behind the requirement, Juan Lopez de Palacios Rubios, turned to the Hebrew example of certain Canaanites who were not driven away after the Israelite conquest but remained as tributaries under forced labor. Another lawyer involved in its drafting reiterated Joshua's conquest, noting, quote, that all of this was done by the will of God because they were idolaters, end quote. Since idolatry was considered a violation of the natural law, according to the common opinion of canon law, and therefore a just cause for war, Indians could be conquered and enslaved as punishment then put to dangerous work in the mines and pearl fishing. This justification, it is, 
punishment of idolatry, was applied in the Indies ad nauseum. The religious war against idolatry enshrined in the requirement first came to fruition in the mainland conquest of the Aztecs of Mexico under Hernán Cortés and his soldiers and native allies. When Cortés summoned his company of soldiers to subdue Aztec lands, he decreed that their principal motive and intention was to dislodge and root out idolatry from all the natives in order to bring them to the Catholic faith. Idolatry was seen as an obstacle to the reception of faith. Cortes recounted in his diary how he enforced the requirement, demanding the natives abandon their idols and submit to the imperial rule of Spain or face punishment and enslavement. Cortes's chaplain and chronicler would later glorify him as, quote, the one who conquered so much land, converted so many persons, destroyed so many false gods, and eliminated so much human sacrifice and cannibalism, end quote. The argument defending religious wars against idolatry would surface most clearly at the Valladolid debate in the opinion of the imperial humanist Juan Ginez de Sepúlveda. In January of 1539, nearly two decades after the conquest of the Aztecs and several years after Pizarro's assault on the Incas, the Dominican theologian Francisco de Vitoria delivered his famous Relectio de Indies at the University of Salamanca. Vitoria began his lecture by rereading Relectio, the great commission of Christ to preach the gospel to all nations in the context of the new world. His juridical egalitarianism famously reached new frontiers in this lecture when he included native non-believers within the scope of universal rights. The Relectio Dei Indies presented a theological response to the Amerindian question, which, Vittoria claimed, went beyond the province of lawyers because it involved subjects not under the laws of the Spanish crown. And this is why theologians had to talk about it. Vittoria had to consider a moral and juridical horizon outside of Spanish civil law to identify the injustices waged against Amerindians. As a juristically inclined theologian, he turned to the natural law and the use gentium, or the right of peoples, for this task. This relectio exhibited Vittoria's doubts about the justice of the Spanish conquests through his meticulous attention to arguments supporting the unlawful and lawful titles to war across the Atlantic. However, the arguments for lawful and unlawful titles did not have equal weight. The rights of unbelievers and the injustices perpetrated against the natives under false titles were certain in Vittoria's account, whereas any proposed lawful titles of Spain were probable at best. Notably, the false titles Vittoria listed were all of the commonly rehearsed Spanish causes of war against the Amerindians that were being used at the time. This included everything from Columbus's so-called right of discovery to the right of punishing acts of idolatry or waging war on the basis of punishing acts of idolatry. A key ingredient of Vittoria's argument was Aquinas' teaching that grace does not annul human law and the political rule of native non-believers. Vittoria followed Cardinal Cajetan's important commentary on the Summa, which provided the locus classicus for Spanish Dominicans to affirm the dominium and rights of native peoples and the use of nonviolence to promote the faith. 
The Lord's Great Commission could not be a pretext for either Christian imperial or papal theocratic expansion and subjugation of foreign peoples. Vittoria, along with many Dominicans, ruled out religious wars in principle for international relations because it violated the true spirit of the gospel. As Vittoria said in the Electio, war is no argument for the truth of Christian faith. Hence, the barbarians cannot be moved by war to believe, but only to pretend that they believe and accept the Christian faith. And this is monstrous and sacrilegious. The term barbarian here is being used synonymously with infidel. Among the important legacies of Vittoria and Spanish scholastic theologians for thinking about world order was the inclusion of infidels as morally free and juridically equal participants. The notions of subjective natural right and the jus gentium were crucial to this argument. Vittoria creatively interpreted the Aristotelian Thomistic concept of use, or the just thing itself, which is the object of the virtue of justice, in juridical terms as what is allowed by laws. This is Vittoria's kind of creative reinterpretation, drawing from uh, <clears throat> medieval canon lawyers. His commentaries on the Summa Theologia of Aquinas furnished a conceptual space for thinking about use, that is right, subjectively as the freedom to act or use a thing within permissible bounds set by law. The new vocabulary signaled a turn to the legal subject of right, which is where he uses the term jus suum and sui juris often in his writings, who can say, I use my right to do what is lawful. Since humanity's characteristic powers or faculties over creation and their freedom of choice stemmed directly from the divine image, all human beings equally have a right in themselves, or a use in se. Correlatively, this means that everyone is capable of inflicting and receiving injury. In keeping with the classic interpretation of the Latin West, Vittoria also identified the use gentium as positive human law, enshrined in shared cross-cultural norms and customs. The use gentium for Vittoria was both a political instrument of a people's self-determination and a supranational moral standard unifying world society, however undeveloped this was in his thought. For Vittoria, the right of peoples carried the authority of what he said called the whole world, implying the world was a universal community that could secure the juridical standing of those distinct peoples comprising it. Without the virtual consent of the peoples of the world embodied in use gentium, the enforcement of basic peremptory and unchanging norms of non-maleficence in the natural law would be nearly impossible, according to Vittoria. In his reading, the right of peoples attained greater status as a public instrument for protecting innocent persons of any formal political grouping or no grouping at all from injury. For this reason, he located just war, which contained, or excuse me, yeah, which contained principles for modern views of humanitarian intervention and non-combatant immunity in his discussion of the use gentium. That war belonged to the use gentium, and not natural law, meant it was a thoroughly political act chosen by public authorities, as Aquinas and the Christian just war tradition claimed, and not a private act carried out by individuals. 
Like modern Catholic social teaching, the Spanish-Dominican theologians appealed to ecclesial faith and the mystical body of Christ to safeguard universal rights for all peoples. The junta, or debate, at Valladolid during 1550 and 1551 between now Dominican bishop Las Casas and the imperial humanist Sepulveda brought the implications of this teaching on the mystical body of Christ into full view. Contrary to common interpretations, this debate did not revolve around the issue of natural slavery, but hinged on the matter of religious coercion and the extension of ecclesiastical power over infidels. The central contention of the debate, as moderated by the Salamanca theologian Domingo de Soto, concerned the alleged lawfulness of making religious war against Amerindian idolaters in order to bring them to conversion. At the heart of the debate was a conflict between two opposed methods of evangelization and two contrasting ideas about natural law reflected in both of these figures. Bishop Las Casas defended a peaceful ethic of evangelization in which the natural law provided a basis for rational persuasion of Indians to the faith. Sepulveda, in, dark, in stark opposition, defended an ethic of conversion by conquest that politicized the natural law and the task of punishing irrational and idolatrous Indians. At the Valladolid Junta, Las Casas extracted an important and overlooked teaching on the mystical body of Christ from Aquinas that could include all of humanity in, a, in an ecclesial vision of world order. Christ was not only the head of the visible church, but also the universal head of humanity through the incarnation. Therefore, he is head of all those who are potential members of the church. Now, actual members of the church are those who are baptized and therefore subject to ecclesiastical power and discipline. However, indigenous non-believers, quote, who have never accepted the faith of Christ, are not actually subject to Christ and are therefore not subject to the church or its authority. Instead, non-believers belong individually as members in potentia to Christ, who is Lord over all creation and humanity. Las Casas resolutely argued that the Christians must respect the freedom of non-believers since this potency is based on the power of Christ who does not force anyone as well as upon the freedom of the will, which cannot be forced either. As Las Casas would put it in his later writings, God left in the hand of each person the free choice to accept the faith or not. The incarnation meant that all humanity belonged to Christ, but not in the same way. The spiritual implications of the mystical body teaching generated a profound insight that echoed St. Paul's teaching that when one member suffers, the whole body suffers, as he says in 1 Corinthians. To the tearful eyes of Las Casas, these innocent natives were the scourged, afflicted, insulted, and crucified peoples of Christ in the Indies. Now, it is worth noting that Vittoria also took inspiration <clears throat> from Aquinas on the mystical body of Christ in order to affirm individual dignity and freedom. In scholastic fashion, Vittoria made a comparison of the mystical body of Christ and the natural body of a single organism. 
The social implications of this dissimilarity or dissimilitude were crucial for Vittoria's account of the unique worth of the individual within the commonwealth. Whereas the parts of a natural body are disposed entirely for the good of the whole, the individual member of the church exists for God and for themselves. Similar to Aquinas, Vittoria identified an end transcending the state, whereby the good of a private man is not even principally, let alone entirely, ordained for the good of the whole community. In the 20th century, Jacques Maritain referred to Vittoria on this specific point to articulate a transcendent desire for God in everyone as the basis for each person's non-instrumental worth, the modern touchstone of human dignity. Unlike Vittoria, Las Casas never entertained the slightest possibility that Spaniards could lawfully subjugate the Indians. He was adamantly clear, the legitimate claims of self-defense and war only issued from the side of the Indian victims, not the Spaniards. The friar distilled the matter plainly in his defense of the Indians at Valladolid, where he read, every nation, no matter how barbaric, has the right to defend itself against a more civilized one that wants to conquer it and take away its freedom. Las Casas understood that <clears throat> colonialists like Cortes, Palacios Rubios, and Sepulveda exploited the natural law to justify aggressive wars against idolatry. Instead, Las Casas proclaimed that the natives under European domination could appeal to the natural law and the use gentium to defend their freedom and rights. When the Spaniards failed to recognize that justice was on the side of the Indians, the bishop must intervene to protect the poor and disadvantaged from their oppressors. This activity was precisely what marked the leadership of Las Casas when he was bishop in New Spain. Even if the Pope had entrusted the Spanish crown with jurisdiction over the Indies, the natives had the natural liberty to consent or dissent from any papal instructions that might violate their native sovereignty. A whole ensemble of basic rights for the Indians grew out of Las Casas's legal advocacy. He was a canon lawyer after all, and that of his fellow Dominicans. The native right of freedom, even in religious matters, their right to govern themselves through free consent, their right to a fair hearing, their right to defend themselves. The Dominican defense of the Indian right of jurisdiction over their lands and their ownership of goods totally opposed the colonial practice of extracting mineral wealth and grabbing uncultivated land. Both Vitoria and Las Casas argued that foreigners could never seize things like pearls, stones, gold, and silver without the free consent of the inhabitants of the region. Additionally, they would have fundamentally rejected the right to occupy vacant or unused lands, commonly deployed in the English dispossession of Native Americans. Now for our final part here. The 1648 Peace of Westphalia ending the Thirty Years' War, which often represents the founding event of international law, fundamentally jettisoned modern Catholic social teaching on world order. I should say early modern social teaching. In the effort to seek greater independence from the authority of the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman papacy, the treaties between equal French, German, Dutch, and Swedish states revolutionized the politics of sovereignty in the West. Pope Innocent X declared the treaties symbolizing the modern state system legally null, void, and invalid for all times, 
due to the Protestant incursion on traditional ecclesiastical authority and property. Part of what has made the Westphalia myth so captivating and influential to the modern political imagination has been its protestation against the Habsburg world monarchy and the universal Roman papacy. The twofold repudiation of the authority of universal society, though not national empires, created a political condition of anarchy among emerging sovereign states no longer subject to a superior power that could adjudicate between them, least of all the papacy. European abandonment of a higher authority, whether earthly or spiritual, supposedly enabled the emergence of international law and the balance of power between equally sovereign states. Early modern Catholic social teaching and the debate at Valladolid offer a counter-history to the Westphalian world system that has governed modern thinking about international relations. The Westphalian traditions of political thought often partitioned into a trifecta grouping of Thomas Hobbes, Hugo Grotius, and Immanuel Kant provide three different options for organizing a world system of equal sovereign states. Hobbes and Machiavelli represent a realist approach to politics. Hugo Grotius and John Locke, a rationalist one, and Immanuel Kant and Christian Wolff, a cosmopolitan approach. The orthodox theory of international relations has cast Westphalia's mythic legacy as the upholding of civic peace and toleration among European states. The Westphalian political traditions share crucial features that preclude recognition of the ongoing historical presence and normative role of the church as a supranational society for the promotion of world order. In large part, this is due to each tradition's profound intellectual and political indebtedness to early modern Protestantism, but also those aspects of Renaissance humanism that deliberately elided the church's supranational character and its concrete influence in social ethical matters. More than Grotius or Kant, Hobbes provided the political terms for the Westphalian traditions. His repudiation of universal ideas of supranational society, the bedrock of international law and human rights, cleared the Westphalian stage for the emancipation of sovereign commonwealths from any higher authority. Hobbes, that anarchic rebel of universal society, consolidated early modern European fears and intellectual currents into a political project dissolving the supranational society of the church within Latin Christendom, what he called the kingdom of darkness. The Englishman deliberately targeted the confederacy of deceivers made up of clergy loyal to the papacy. In Hobbes's estimation, the Roman church was an international conspiracy responsible for fomenting rebellions within states and wars between them. He entirely rejected the Roman church's presumed spiritual power and its involvement in temporal affairs, having similar disdain for the medieval hierocratic model of Pope Innocent III and the counter-reformation indirect theory of Cardinal Bellarmine. And that can be seen reflected here in this frontispiece to the Leviathan, where he's holding the spiritual and temporal powers, the symbols of both in one, right, the Leviathan. Hugo, excuse me, the traditional two powers distinction in the Latin West, according to Hobbes, was a mere fable concocted by fairies, he called clergy, and ghosts or popes to wield power over subjects after the empire of pagan Rome was long dead. 
A central aim of Hobbes' political writings, then, was to break up the legal and spiritual unity of Christendom, for it posed the greatest threat to civil authorities and the loyalty of their subjects. He squarely belonged to the Protestant impulse of Westphalia, coincidentally publishing Leviathan just three years after the treaties. The two principles of intercultural unity in the Latin West, radically reformulated by Hobbes, were human nature and the rule of faith, both of which had traditionally held together the universal society of humankind and the church. Characteristically, Hobbes capitalized on the fear of death to persuade his readers to accept Leviathan as the solution to inescapable war that was posed by untamed human nature or the Roman church. Leviathan was the guardian against both the violent universal state of nature and the subversive universal papacy. According to Hobbes, there is on earth no such universal church as all Christians are bound to obey because there is no power on earth to which all other commonwealths are subject. Each commonwealth comprised of Christians was, in essence, a church. Hobbes' belief in the church as polis made him a political theologian par excellence. The Hobbesian domestication of the universal church into discrete churches of independent commonwealths was a Westphalian revolt against the idea and politics of supranational society. This also had profound implications for his understanding of natural law and the law of nations. Hobbes did not seek to abolish the natural law as wrest it from ideas of ontological perfection and any universal moorings in scholastic metaphysics, canon law, and ecclesiastical power. By cutting off what he considered the suffocating political grip of the kingdom of darkness, he could posit a territorialized version of natural law under the civil laws of the domestic sovereigns. The enforceable norms of natural law and the law of nations were nothing but the positive determinations of each respective commonwealth and its civil laws. Law, or lex, for Hobbes, had a constraining and obligatory force. Yet this contrasted with his idea of natural right, or use. Natural right, in contrast to natural law, was an unfettered power, which had the liberty to preserve oneself, which left competing individuals who inhabited the state of nature perilously stuck with their private judgments about the necessary means for survival. Hobbes' invention of the state of nature made up of individuals in equal possession of an untrammeled right of self-preservation rewrote the story of European political thought. As Hobbes taught, where there is no common power, there is no law. Where no law, no injustice. Common right without an underlying social nature or an overarching authoritative power amounts to the superior right of every individual using might. Hobbes' conclusion that individuals in such a dreadful muted state need civil society and its positive laws for protection and adjudication carried the greatest rhetorical force. Outside the commonwealth, there is no justice, hence no salvation. Hobbes relied on a standard of civilization here as the benchmark for demarcating real political societies from the savage state of nature. The anarchic state of nature as an encounter between inherently conflictual, even deadly individuals in possession of their own right without a common superior authority 
was a mainstay of Western modernity's domestic politics and international politics. The domestic analogy, as Headley Bull called it, was Hobbes' chief contribution to the Westphalian political traditions. It posited that states, in their interactions with one another, were like individual men in the state of nature, without government and prone to perpetual conflict. World politics for Hobbes was an international state of nature. Most tellingly, the state of nature was much more than a hypothetical or abstract notion in Hobbes' political thought and the Westphalian traditions as well. The most palpable empirical proof for its existence, that is the state of nature, was not in some relic of the past, but happening now among what Hobbes called the savage people in many places of America. In the broadly generalized terms of On the Citizen, which here I've also posted the frontispiece <coughs> to the work, Hobbes's identification of the Americans as concrete examples of the poor and brutish state of nature served the rhetorical function of sharply distinguishing it from civil society. Several years before the treaties of Westphalia, Hobbes clearly expounded a standard of civilization that would mark Westphalia's legacy. The distinction was visibly manifest, as we see here in this frontispiece to the 1642 Paris edition of On the Citizen. It depicted Lady Justice on the right, holding her sword and scales <clears throat> while standing on the pedestal of Imperium on one side, and a native Algonquin woman holding a bow and spear on the left, standing on Libertas on the other. Behind the figures were representations of their respective modes of life. Imperium represented peaceful society, focused on the cultivation of land with cities in the background, whereas Libertas pointed to savages at war with each other in a vast wilderness with trees and small dwellings. The frontispiece image reinforced Hobbes' partitioning of the world in two, contrasting the rule of European civil society in the old world with the wild liberty of savages occupying the state of nature in the new world. We can detect here perhaps the most important difference between Spanish and English models of colonialism. Whereas the Spanish sought to incorporate Indios with the political, within the political rule of transatlantic Christendom, the English mostly displaced savages to make room for Western civilization. Hobbes also undermined the rationality of native pleas for maintaining traditional ways of life due to his savage portrayal of them. As he would write, anyone who believes that one should remain in that state in which all is allowed to all is contradicting himself. By deduction, unyielding Amerindians could appear to be rational for refusing to abide by the natural law precepts of peace and security that lead individuals out of their natural state. The prospects for colonial justifications flung wide open once the natural law was no longer rationally evident among uncivilized peoples. Hobbes, who served as a member of the Virginia Company for a decade earlier in his career, confronted the parochial limits of Leviathan in colonial context. For Hobbes, there was nothing in principle to detract a monarch from acquiring diverse nations by war and conquest, though Hobbes did warn against the immodest expansion of dominion for fear of its self-annihilation. The legacy of Westphalia through Hobbes was already beginning to show its colonial underbelly. 
The Hobbesian international state of nature and its pervasive potential for conflict yielded a spectrum of possibilities for later Westphalian political thinkers. John Locke, despite showing more affinity for sociability like Grotius and unlike Hobbes, still considered the meeting of independent rulers to be plain examples of the international state of nature. Regardless of entering treaties and trade, separate governments belong to the state of nature, according to Locke, as individuals lacking a single political society. Kant's political theory also began from the Hobbesian construal of the state of nature in hostile terms, only to bring into sharper focus the urgent ethical demand to establish a cosmopolitan federation of peoples short of a world government. After Hobbes and Westphalia, the natural law and even the law of nations, residues of Christendom, remained useful concepts for asserting the moral and juridical unity of humankind, even as belief in its traditional normative counterpart in the universal church waned. Yet these became increasingly politicized concepts, that is, the natural law and the law of nations, that were marked by a sociology of humanity resting on a clear separation between civilized and barbaric peoples, with Europeans at the center and savages at the periphery. Locke, whose colonial interests in the Carolinas were strong, had much to gain by stating in his second treatise of government that in the beginning all the world was America, meaning it still belonged to the state of nature. As a great deal of scholarship has shown, and I won't get into here, Locke conceptualized an individual's natural right to private property to disadvantage and dispossess Native American claims to communal property. Civilized European settlers were justified in forcefully taking possession of land by cultivating and making use of it instead of letting it waste as savages did. This colonial agricultural argument on behalf of the individual appropriation of wasted spaces and uncultivated lands became a de facto norm in American history and the westward expansion of manifest destiny. Hugo Grotius and Emmer de Vittel also advanced agricultural arguments under the auspices of the natural right to occupy and settle uncultivated land. Similar to Locke, when Grotius and Vittel spoke of the great society of mankind to ground their ideas about natural law and the law of nations, they did so in a novel political situation that no longer abided by the laws, institutions, and customs of the universal Roman church. However, their vision of international society would not escape the critical acumen of a thinker like Kant, who surprisingly did have an ecclesiology, however thin it was. The Enlightenment philosopher saw through any humanitarian pretensions, calling Grotius and Vittel sorry comforters, whose rights of war, for example, had no legal force whatsoever on states in the absence of international arbitration or a supereminent authority. Kant's critique of the sorry comforters echoed Hobbes's point about the ineffectiveness of right apart from the independent will of the sovereign state. The ecclesial witness and support of world order gains prominence in the story of international relations if we do not resort to a strictly Westphalian outlook. With Valladolid providing a narrative access rather than Westphalia, the question of the infidel, along with the innocent, the poor, the dispossessed, moves from the periphery to the center in thinking about world order. The idea of world order provides the organizing principle of supranational society as the natural and mystical unity of humankind. 
The fundamental unit for analyzing world order is not the sovereign state, but the individual human being made in the image of God and inscribed with a social nature, and also a potential or actual member of the church. From a theological perspective, God's sovereign rule in Christ, the desired of all the nations, renders international anarchy or the anarchical society ontologically inert. To conclude, we Americans are oftentimes Lockeans, ever fearful of Hobbes' idea of the sovereign church. Christians who are unsatisfied with these Westphalian remains may find in the church's social teaching on world order a renewed commitment and sense of urgency to promote human dignity and human rights. Yet this is a vision of dignity and rights illuminated by faith in the God who shows preferential love not toward abstract humanity, but toward the poor, forgotten, and dispossessed. Thank you.